I've had a wild sensation with this book of 1 John. I haven't wanted to give up any of the chapters. I haven't wanted to give up any of the sermons. I'm overwhelmed at how encouraging this book is. I've known this book since I was in high school. In fact, I've told you before, it's the only book of the Bible that I've actually memorized from beginning to end. And I tell you now, you know, some 34 years later, I don't remember much of any of it. I'm reading it, and sometimes it seems like I'm reading it for the first time. And if you have been reading 1 John, I wonder if it struck you as that, as encouraging as it is. If you go and look at the book of 1 John and you begin to read it, it's going to take you 14 minutes to read it slowly from the beginning to the end. And you know, I kind of want to throw down the gauntlet and say, we ought to each be reading this every day, all summer long. You could do worse than spend 14 minutes of every day this summer reading the book of 1 John over and over and over and over. And as I was reminded in a seminar that I went to this week, the reading of the scriptures was almost always done out loud. So if you're ashamed of your ability or inability to read, go into a bathroom somewhere, close the door of your bedroom, but read this book because it's so encouraging. And we talked last week about the encouraging nature of 1 John, that it encourages us because it points us to the reality of who we are children of God, beloved of the Father, over and over. Those who have known the Father, those who are strong, those who have overcome the evil one, as we saw last week in our sermon, right? And this week, John continues to encourage us together as the church. Now, I want you to think about a particular form of encouragement. If you were to be taken to the top of a hill and someone whom you were following, who knew how to get down the hill, told you, hey, that's an easy way down the hill, and then took off. And you began to follow them down the hill. I don't care if you're riding a mountain bike. I don't care if you're hiking. I don't care if you're skiing. Picture whatever you want in your head. And suddenly, the way down becomes so difficult. I want to ask you, are you encouraged or are you mad right now? <laughs> My brother was out west this spring, and he got stuck on a mountain in Utah, and it was so difficult to get down. All he could do was think about all the negative things he wanted to say to his buddy that told him this is the easy way down. He said it would have been much more encouraging if his friend had said, this is really hard, get ready. And what I want you to see is that in this section of 1 John, John, the elder father, older than anybody in this room, able to speak to us in this room as children, as those with youth and vigor, and even as fathers who have known the Heavenly Father from the beginning, I want you to be encouraged, but this is going to be hard. This is difficult. The theme of our passage today is what you have in front of you, and I want to make sure that you see it. It's right there written on page 14, but I'm going to say it to you here. The reality of our times requires us to take stock in our resources so that we might respond faithfully. This is easy to follow, the R's. We've got three R's in here. The reality of our times require us to take stock in our resources so that we might respond faithfully. The way I want you to think about this sermon is what is the reality of the church during our time? What is it? The second thing I want you to think about is what are our resources? And the third thing that I want us to think about together is what is our response, all right? So the first one comes from the very beginning. What is the reality of the church during our time, during our day and age, during this time in which we live? 
I'm claiming that the reality of our times require us to take stock in our resources so that we might respond faithfully. What is the reality of the church during our time? It's interesting. John starts here and he says, children, it's the last hour. This idea and this concept of using this idea of hour is not something that John came up with. This idea of times, past, present, and future is language of the Old Testament. It's language that denotes epics of time in history. You guys are familiar with many of them. We sang about one of them in the song that Nathan sang, When the Wolf Would Lie Down with the Lion, Isaiah 11. It starts actually in Isaiah 2, and it says, there will be a time coming when God is going to make his glory known. In Isaiah 9, he says, in the former times it was this way, but in the latter times... God is going to reveal himself. And then we even see this concept of time picked up by Peter in his, in his sermon in Acts. He uses the book of Joel, and he actually says that this is the age to come that Joel was talking about when, when God would pour out his spirit. That later time has come. It's now is what Peter says. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, picks it up as well. And he says, in the past times, God spoke to his prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus. And so the last days, the idea of a timing is where we get the idea of creation, of fall, of redemption, of consummation. And the era in which we live is that era between redemption having been accomplished in Christ and applied in our lives by the power of the Spirit until Jesus returns. I read one commentator this week, and he made it really clear to me. It was really cool. He said, you should think about it like this, that since the creation of the world and since the creation of Adam and Eve, time has been marching forward to a fixed point, which is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, His life his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Everything has been marching straight to that end. And at that point, it takes a hard turn to the right or the left. Think about it any way you want. If you're right-handed, think about it to the right. If you're left-handed, you're not going to get left out. Think about it to the left. It doesn't matter. Because what it means is that all of time is now moving along that edge of the end of time. All of time is right there at the edge of the end of time. Jesus is the one who says in his own voice, I don't know when the end is going to come. It's only of the Father. And we're also told in the New Testament that the end is going to come like a thief in the night. No one knows. It's going to happen. Jesus says, be ready for it. Because time is following the edge of the end, the last hour, this time. And that's where we are. And he says that that's our reality. The first thing is, is that we live at this last hour. And then he says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and notice that it's in singular, you could say the Antichrist if you want to. We're going to talk about this in just a second. It now says, so now many Antichrists have come. And listen to the next verse, verse 18 at the end. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. The proof of it being the last hour, at the end of time, at the end of history, since Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, is the presence of many antichrists, right? And this is the reality. Again, 
It would not be fair for me to tell you that this was not the reality. John does not shy away from this being the reality of the church, that there are many antichrists who have come out of the church. Listen to verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The other reality of the church during our time is that the church spins out those who have the spirit of the Antichrist. The church spins out those who have the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, listen, I want to make sure this is clear. I'm not saying that the church produces those who have the spirit of the Antichrist. That would be horrible. And that's not the case. But the church spins out almost in a sense that those who have the spirit of the Antichrist can't stay in the church. John mentions that there is an Antichrist. This picture of one who would stand up and oppose Christ, the opposite of the one who is anointed is what Antichrist means, not the anointed one. The one who would stand up and deceive the world is as old as the prophetic language of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11 exemplified as the beast there in in revelations as the beast and of the dragon and as paul writes to the thessalonians as the one of lawlessness i'm persuaded that there is an individual that will one day seek to deceive many as these antichrists who have been spun out of the church are seeking to deceive as we see in verse 30 or 26 but here we have those who are being spun out of the church those multiple antichrists who bear the spirit of the antichrist. And what is that spirit of the antichrist? Look down in verse 22. We're going to jump ahead really quickly and then we're done with this section. It says, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. It's easy to see who is the antichrist. The one who has the spirit who denies that Jesus is the Christ, who denies that Jesus is the Savior, the Anointed One, the means by which any human being is saved. The one who denies that bears the spirit of the Antichrist. You go, Bradley, honestly, has CTK spun out any Antichrist yet? Because John says that the church is spinning out those who have the spirit of the Antichrist. They're thrown out of the church, as it were. They're leaving the church, proving that they were never part of the church. I don't personally know of anyone who has been spun out of our church with the spirit of the Antichrist. Praise God. But we ought to recognize the reality of this time, that the spirits of the Antichrist are the one who says that Jesus is not the Christ, the Messiah, the one by whom we're saved. Listen, it might come home a little bit closer if I say it this way. Do you believe that salvation is by no other way than in Christ, period? Because the spirit of the Antichrist is the one who suggests that salvation can come by another way. What do we see those means of salvation that you and I often find ourselves pursuing? Success, Possessions, power, sexual identity, avoidance of suffering. I mean, the list could go on, couldn't it? 
And there are many of those in the church, capital C, who have left the church and said, look, Jesus Christ is not going to be the center. The center is going to be something else that brings me salvation. My ability for liberty, to be who I want to be, when I want to be it, according to my terms. Salvation by some other means. John says that's the spirit of the Antichrist. What is the reality of the church during our time? It's that we're at the end of time and that the church spins out those who profess something other than Christ. And they leave proving that they were never part of the church because they abandon the very message of the church, right? And that brings us to the second point of the three. Remember, the first one was what is the reality of the church? There it is, right there, according to John. The second one is what are our resources? If that's the case, this is overwhelming. I was studying this week. You know, I was away in Dallas for most of the week, so I was actually studying yesterday. I was in the office. I was reading about Antichrist. I was, I mean, I was deep into this stuff. The books, the pages were flying. I was in it, and all of a sudden, I'm reading, and I'm, I'm getting a little tense, and all of a sudden, the lights flick on and off in my office, and I literally screamed. I went, wow, like that, and I looked up, and there, James and Monica at the door of my office who couldn't get my attention because my headphones were in. I listened to storms as I study, and I, were anxious. I I was just reading about the Antichrist, and thank the Lord, it was James and Monica. They are not the Antichrist. Maybe two other people in this church have... Um, good looking, but over the course of the decades of knowing James and Monica have pushed me to understanding Christ, the nature of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the beauty of Christ. So what are the resources? There are two resources that we read in verse 20. Listen to them. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, number one, right? You've been anointed by the Holy One, and number two, right there. And you all have knowledge. None of you are left out. This is the southern way of saying y'all have been anointed by the Holy One, and y'all all have knowledge. That's what he says are our resources. And then he goes on with those resources in reverse order. So let's just look at them really quickly. What about the knowledge piece? Verses 21 through 25, he talks about this idea of knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. What this, what's the truth that he's talking about? He's talking about the apostolic message that God saves sinners, that God loves sinful people, and that he acts on their behalf and he did so by sending Jesus. God loves sinful people. And God saves sinful people. Paul says it's while we were dead in our sins and transgressions that God made us alive in Christ. And he says, look, there is no lie in the truth. He then says, who's the liar? And you go on back to what we read before. He who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the means of salvation. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And recognize what he's saying is this. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you lose the identity of the Father too. Because Jesus came to make the Father known. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that. Former times, God made himself known to the, by the prophets, but in these latter times, makes himself known by Jesus. The exact imprint of his likeness. And if you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you lose the Father as well. And that's what he's saying here. No one who denies the Son has the Father, verse 23. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. This idea of knowledge, the first thing we know is that what the apostles have said is true. 
What the Bible says is true. This is your anchor. It's what you hold on to. The second thing is this, that Jesus is the Christ who reveals God the Father, just like we said. God's identity. And remember, when Moses asked God who he was, God told Moses, I'll show you myself, but only my backside. Puts him in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 34. God passes by Moses, and you remember that God says, I am God. I am filled with steadfast love and kindness, showing mercy to thousands of generations. But I will by no means declare innocent those who are guilty of sins to the third and the fourth generation. You want to know one of the things that we understand about the identity of God, and I hope you've already heard me use it twice. I'm going to use it again and yet again, is that God, by his very identity, is weighted and biased toward mercy. And we see that in Jesus. In Christ, the knowledge of Christ, we have the Father. This is why we do Bible study, so that we learn this and we steep ourselves in this. And then finally, that we have hope. And what is our hope? It says in verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. This is our hope. Now, you all know human beings as well as I do. Woody Guthrie knew them even better than we do. And Woody Guthrie says this about human beings. He says, about all that a human being is anyway is just a hoping machine, is what he said. The reason I found that is because I was looking up one of his other songs that I really love called Let's Make Christ Our President. Let us have him for our king. And I kind of wondered if anybody ever walked up to Woody Guthrie and said, Woody Guthrie, we don't have the right to make Christ our president or our king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords by his identity. You see, it's not great that you are hopeful. I'm glad that you're hopeful. But what is real is what is your hope rooted in? Is it rooted in knowledge? And then secondly, we see that we have as our resource the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing reality, and it's a reality that every writer of the New Testament picks up on. Paul picks up on it in two different places, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. He reminds them that they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of their inheritance kept for them in heaven. He does it again to the Christians in Ephesus. He says in chapter 1 that you have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what is yours, this anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what's really interesting? This idea of anointing is based off of the same word as Christ. Get this, when it, when it says antichrist, it says not the anointed one. But then he turns around and he says, but you are anointed. Isn't that amazing? He actually says that your identity is as ones who have been anointed. You've been given the same anointing that Jesus was given. The anointing of the Holy Spirit who descended upon him at his baptism so that he could say in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon me. I am anointed to preach good news to a lost world. And that is our resource. Both the knowledge of who Jesus is and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is ours in Christ. Do you know what that does for us? Union with Christ. Did you know that over 60%... That's the bide. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. I'll, I'll, I'll skip that for a minute. This idea of being anointed is the idea that Jesus says in John 14 
listen, I'm sending you my spirit. And I'm also going to ask the Father to send it, that you would be one with me, that our resources aren't just knowledge, but we're united with Christ. That's who the church is. Those are our resources. And what have they been given for? They've been given so that we would have right response. Remember what the Holy Spirit does for you. The Holy Spirit teaches you. It says that in verse 27 here. It says your anointing teaches you. It also says that the Holy Spirit abides with us. It says the Holy Spirit encourages us, advocates us, advocates with us, or for us rather. An amazing verse in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit groans so deeply, doesn't even have words for it. And then convicts us of our sins, convinces us that we are children of God. The work of the Holy Spirit is the gift, our resource, so that our response would be specific. And this is what he says, verse 24. Between 24 and the end, he says it four different times. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, is the first verse in 24. And then the end simply says this, just as it has taught you, the anointing teaching us, the Holy Spirit teaching us, just as the Holy Spirit has taught you, abide in him. What is our response supposed to be as a church, as God's people? We're supposed to abide in him. 60% of the use of that word is from John, either in the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or the book of Revelation. John loves this idea that we would abide in him. John didn't think of it. When John talks about the anointing, it is hard to imagine that he's not talking about the Gospel of John, chapter 14, when Jesus says, I promise I'm going to send you my spirit. And then guess what it says in chapter 15? You are the vine. I am the vine, rather, Jesus says. You are the branches. Abide in me. And the one who abides in me will bear much fruit. Right? This idea of abiding is actually used consistently in the Old Testament for the character of God. Psalm 9 says that the Lord will abide on his throne forever. The same thing is told of Psalm 102. And there it also says that because the Lord will abide on his throne forever, it's now become the time for him to demonstrate pity, to pour out mercy. This idea of abiding is the very character of God. The word of God abides forever. Mark 12 tells us that the Messiah abides forever. We're told in this, these verses that the Holy Spirit abides forever. And then that we Women and men created in the image of God are to abide forever. We're to abide, as Jesus says in John 15, in his love. We're to abide in it. We're called to respond by abiding in God, by abiding in the truth, by abiding in Christ. We use the phrase, taking advantage of the means of grace. I wonder if any of you have been stopped that I, as a climber, hasn't talked about free solo yet. Well, I was at GA, and so this is my time to talk to you about free solo. I know you've all seen the movie. If you haven't, it's on Netflix. You gotta go see it, this documentary, Alex Honnold climbs El Cap without any ropes, right? Climbers understand climbs by degree of difficulty. Degree of difficulty starts at uh, 5.1 and goes through right now 5.15. And that degree of difficulty tells you a little bit about how hard it is to climb. When you climb to overcome the danger of falling and of dying, 
you end up putting protection in the rock as you go up. When John, the elder father, says to his dearly beloved children, abide in the knowledge and the anointed one who abides in you, because it's very character of God. He is saying, stick your protection throughout your life in him. Students, you've either gone to college, you're about to go to college, or you're looking forward to going to college. Do you know the statistics say that 70% of you will walk away from the church between the ages of 17 and 25? You go, not me. Is there any confidence that you won't? That's why I put that question on the beginning of the order of worship. Yes, there's great confidence that you won't. There's great confidence that you won't because of the truths and the promises of Scripture, the abiding of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you abiding in Him. But I want you to know that if you think that you can step away from those means of grace, the preaching of God's word, the administration of his sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer. It is like climbing with no protection in. You say, well, I put my faith and trust in Jesus one time. I'm tying a knot, right? I'm on my waist, right? And, and then I start climbing up, but I don't put any protection in. You might as well take the rope off and follow Alex Honnold and climb without one. But here's the hope. Our hope is that we trust in a God who abides. He abides. His love abides in you. He loves you. He has given you everything you need. The reality of our times is that it's very hard to be a Christian. We have great resources, the truth and the abiding of the Holy One, so that we might respond with our own abiding in him. And look, I'm going to close with this statement. I know that these verses don't say anything about concern about each other abiding. But it's impossible to read 1 John in context. Where John says that to obey the commandments is to believe in Jesus as the Christ and to love one another without going, we ought to be concerned that one another is abiding in the truth. We ought to be engaged in each other's lives. So as you come to this table, I want you to think that you are putting in protection as you walk out, that you are enabled to live faithfully because the life of the church is difficult to proclaim Christ. So the command is to abide in him. The reality is there, but we have the resources. Let's come and take advantage of them that we might respond faithfully. Pray with me.